Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, we talked about the formation of Chic, the suave disco-era band conceived by guitarist Nile Rodgers and bassist Bernard Edwards as a collective of top-notch players offering sophisticated, jazzy, and instrumentally complex dance music. But I'm Many of their songs even implored you to dance right in the lyrics. By 1979, Chic were not only about to score one last major hit, they were going to set a musical template for the 80s, helping to spawn both a new genre, hip-hop, and the sound of pop's next wave. Sheik's all-time most immortal hit, the song that would inspire countless other artists and songs, was itself inspired by an earlier hit. In a story that may be apocryphal, Nile Rogers claims he was trying to come up with a variation on his favorite Cool in the Gang song. Hollywood Swinging is a highlight of Cool and the Gang's early years as a hard funk group. It reached number one R&B, number six pop in 1974, and Nile Rodgers loved its relentless groove. The guitar line that he came up with while noodling in the studio was inspired by, but not a copy of, Hollywood Swinging. As you can hear in this YouTube recreation, it has the same strut, the same chicken scratch chug, but its own unforgettable melody. Here's the amazing thing. As catchy as Niall's guitar line is, it's not even the most iconic part of the song. 
That would be the percolating, walking baseline that Bernard Edwards laid down in the studio. Nile Rodgers claims that Edwards came up with it on the spot. That baseline, the thump, 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 followed by an irresistible strolling melody, made the song indelible. And Rogers and Edwards paired this sturdy melodic backdrop with joyous lyrics that were wistful and knowingly ironic. Quote, the country was undergoing the worst economic downturn in 1979 that it's seen since, like, the Great Depression. Rogers said in a 2002 interview. So when we wrote Good Times, what did we do? We went back to the Great Depression. Straight up Al Jolson. Jolson sang, the stars are going to twinkle and shine this evening about a quarter to nine. So our lyrics are, happy days are here again. Unquote. With stellar synchronized vocals from Sheik's two-woman, one-man team of Alpha Anderson, Lucy Martin, and Fonzie Thornton, Good Times was the ultimate expression of Sheik's jazzy, future nostalgia vibe. It fused Al Jolson with George Clinton, Cole Porter with Cool in the Gang, the Roaring Twenties with the Disco Seventies, and by August 1979, Good Times, the lead single from Sheik's acclaimed third album, Risqué, had topped the Hot 100. With the most popular song in America this week, as determined by Billboard magazine, here's Chic and Good Times. Of course, if that Bernard Edwards bassline sounds familiar to you, it's because you've probably heard it before, and not just on that Chic song. The Good Times bassline traveled everywhere. Most famously, or infamously, depending on your point of view, on this historic single. We talked about the seminal Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang three years ago in our Def Jam's edition of Hit Parade, one of the first recorded rap singles and the first period to crack the Billboard Hot 100 where it peaked at number 36, Rapper's Delight is notorious for borrowing or biting or let's just say it, stealing the baseline from Good Times. To be fair, it's not a sample. At the direction of Sugar Hill Records mogul Sylvia Robinson, who needed a sturdy backdrop for the rhymes of MCs Wonder Mike Wright, Big Bank Hank Jackson, and Master G O'Brien, the Good Times bass hook was replayed by a studio bassist. It's either Bernard Rowland or Chip Sheeran. Sources differ on who it actually was. But even re-recorded, it's the same bass line. 
the Sugar Hill team meant to recreate good times. That was the point. I'm in love with you. Gaston over legend must have been true. I said, by the way, baby, what's your name? Said I go by the name Lois Lane. And you can Not to argue that the ends justify the means, but if, as they say, great artists steal, then great art steals from the best. Rapper's Delight established rap as a recorded medium, coined the very term hip-hop, and, you might say, made the Good Times hook even more immortal than it already was. Of course, it was still musical larceny. Within months, Good Times co-writers Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers were given writing credits and, eventually, royalties on the song. Rogers still, to this day, will throw in rhymes from Rapper's Delight into his live performances of Good Times. It's hard to really blame Sylvia Robinson's team for biting that bass line. They weren't the only ones stealing it. Barely six months after Rapper's Delight peaked on the charts, music fans heard this from a British rock group, not a rap crew, pumping from their radio. Queen's Another One Bites the Dust topped the Hot 100 in the fall of 1980. You can think of this not as a Sugar Hill-style recreation, but a rock interpolation. Written by Queen's bassist, John Deacon, Dust borrows most of the Good Times bassline, transposes a note or two, and creates a new song from it. But the lineage is still hard to miss, and this similarity was no accident. In 1979, while recording their respective albums Risqué and The Game, Sheik met John Deacon and the members of Queen. In a later interview with British pop magazine New Musical Express, Sheik's Bernard Edwards stated, with no small amount of shade, quote, that Queen record came about because that Queen bass player spent some time hanging out with us in our studio, unquote. Honestly, the Sheik duo could have spent a lot of time in court. That baseline reappeared, in somewhat less obvious contexts, on other hits, such as Blondie's 1981 number one, Rapture, another hip-hop landmark. Or on Grandmaster Flash's turntable workout, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. Or a decade later, on this rap hit by Father MC. And deeper into the 90s on this Will Smith hit. (laughs) 
however you hear it, whether from Sheik themselves or some other artist biting it, good times will probably never disappear. And hey, thank heaven for that. Back in 1979, however, the notoriety of Good Times had nothing to do with its baseline. It was seen as the last stand in a now infamous insurrectionist culture war. We've talked about the Disco Sucks movement on Hit Parade multiple times. It plagued the careers of Donna Summer, the Bee Gees, and countless other disco-era acts. For Chic in particular, it was awkwardly timed. Good Times was rising on the charts, just as Chicago DJ Steve Dahl was organizing his infamous Disco Demolition Night in Comiskey Park in July of 1979. And in August of 79, one week after it went to number one, Good Times was ushered out of the top spot by a song that rock fans were quite openly rooting for. According to Nile Rodgers, this was not a coincidence. My Sharona by new wave rockers The Knack not only ejected Chic from number one, it spent six weeks there, winding up as the top song of 1979, an upset victory in that disco-dominant year. Whether through bad luck or this cultural sea change, Chic never returned, not only to number one, but to the entire Billboard Top 40. Their next single, the sterling My Forbidden Lover, with the same triple-teamed vocals by Alpha, Lucy, and Fonzie, stalled at number 43, a lowly peak for the follow-up to a number one hit. Happy Days were not here again. Sheik's two-year imperial phase was over. However, the careers of Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards most certainly were not over. They were bitter at the Disco Sucks campaign. To this day, Nile blames it for the change in their chart fortunes. But even as their star faded as artists, their next decade would only burnish their legend. And it all started with a new client who was a legend herself. Former Supreme Diana Ross was one of the highest-profile stars of the 70s, but for such a luminary, she had a surprisingly hit-or-miss chart career. Songs by Diana Ross would either hit number one, like Ain't No Mountain High Enough or Love Hangover, 
or they would miss the top 10, the top 20, even the top 40 entirely. By 1979, Diana Ross hadn't had a major hit in about three years, but Motown was looking to cement her comeback. They had just gotten her song, The Boss, into the top 20, and they thought maybe with the help of the hottest duo in dance music, Diana could do even better. Enter Niall and Bernard. Diana Ross was easily the highest profile client the Chic organization had ever taken on, and Rogers and Edwards were anxious to get it right. The recording sessions for the album that would be dubbed simply Diana reportedly went well, friendly, convivial, but by 1980, when Ross heard Nile and Nard's mixes for the album, that's when things got chillier. What you're hearing is the original mix of Upside Down, a future smash from the Diana album. But Ross did not care for the cavernous, busy arrangement. And in true diva fashion, she wanted her vocals both better recorded and more prominent in the mix. So, over Edwards and Rogers' objections, Ross went back into the studio with Motown engineer Russ Tirana, and she both re-recorded her vocals and restructured the entire mix. The new version of Upside Down sounded like this. Respectfully, I say to thee, I'm aware that you're cheating, when no Here's the thing. Diana is a legend for a reason. She was basically right. Her retaken vocals were better, and the remix sounded better, more direct, less cluttered, perfect for the radio. That said, Rogers and Edwards had written her some killer songs, arguably the best of her solo career, Upside Down, My Old Piano. personal favorite, a not-so-secret homage to Diana's gay fans that Nile Rodgers called I'm Coming Out. But even that brilliant fanfare of a song needed a retake. Diana needed to inhabit the Chic songs and make them her own. Yet again, the second take of I'm Coming Out with new vocals and a punchier mix was much improved. Rogers and Edwards, either out of respect or peak, probably both, 
briefly considered taking their names off the album in favor of Russ Tarana as the producer of record. But they thought better of it when they realized their client, Diana Ross, was happy. However bumpy the journey, the Diana album was the best of all possible worlds. It combined brilliant songwriting, playing, and singing by the Chic organization, Bernard Edwards, Nile Rodgers, and Tony Thompson, plus backing vocals from Alpha Anderson, Lucy Martin, and Fonzie Thornton, with the sharp ears and pop instincts of the Motown hit factory. The Diana album reached number two on the Billboard album chart. Its lead single, Upside Down, returned Ross to number one on the Hot 100, and the follow-up, I'm Coming Out, reached number five, a remarkable peak for a thinly-veiled, lovingly-delivered LGBTQ anthem in the year 1980. So, for at least one post-disco project, Team Chic had kept the machine rolling. Like Barry Gibb and his brothers on Barbara Streisand's blockbuster 1980 album, Guilty, Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers had spent the first year after the Disco Sucks movement succeeding via a smash LP fronted by a classic diva. They were grateful to have something to tote up in the win column, whereas the fourth studio album by Chic, called Real People, underperformed on the charts, barely scraping the top 30. Its lead single, the Lucy Martin showcase Rebels Are We, topped out at a lowly number 61 on the Hot 100, although it did make the R&B top 10. For all its success, the Diana album only briefly postponed the Chic production team's time in the wilderness. They entered a long fallow period where they tried a little of everything and none of it stuck. I know a race, here when I say, I love a lady, I love a lady. Edwards and Rogers offered their services in 1981 to crooner legend Johnny Mathis. But after recording an entire album, the jazz-inflected I Love My Lady, the LP was shelved by Columbia Records in favor of a Mathis Greatest Hits album. Tracks from the I Love My Lady project would not surface until the 2010s. And then there was this misfire. The first solo album by Blondie singer Debbie Harry called Cuckoo should, in theory, have been a smash. It was the follow-up to a chart-topping string of Blondie hits, produced and co-written by the chic duo whose music had inspired their hit, Rapture. Harry's album was a cutting-edge fusion of funk, rock, and dance music. 
maybe too cutting edge. Songs like Backfired, written by Rogers and Edwards, didn't connect on pop or rock radio, and Cuckoo's freaky album cover, an image by sci-fi and horror artist H.R. Giger, depicting Debbie Harry's face with swords piercing her cheeks, couldn't have helped. Cuckoo peaked at number 25 on the album chart, generated no top 40 hits, and was off the chart in just three months. Say this for Rogers and Edwards, they would try anything. The producers of the 1982 film Soup for One, a sex comedy set in New York, invited the chic duo to record the entire soundtrack. And, once again, the material was all courant early 80s dance pop. The title track to Soup for One, performed by Chic, was even an R&B hit, peaking at number 14 on the soul chart. The soundtrack also gave Rodgers and Edwards a chance to work with singer-songwriter Carly Simon. They wrote and produced Simon's most left-field avant-garde single ever, the tropical funk track, Why. But when the raunchy, poorly-reviewed movie flopped at the box office, so did Sheik's Soup for One soundtrack. It peaked at number 168 on the album chart. Even when the Sheik organization did score a hit, it didn't make much of an impact on the American charts. French singer Sheila of the disco group Sheila and B Devotion took the Rogers Edwards track Spacer into the top 10 across Europe, but it barely scraped the U.S. club chart. Perhaps Europe and the UK would, in fact, be the key to Sheik's comeback, because through no involvement by Nile Rodgers or Bernard Edwards, a new wave of pop, in Britain especially, sounded a whole lot like them. Duran Duran co-founders Nick Rhodes and John Taylor conceived of their post-punk meets new romantic band as a hybrid of, quote, the Sex Pistols and Chic. John Taylor's frenetic bass lines, in particular, strongly echoed the work of Bernard Edwards. And Andy Taylor's lead guitar lines adapted Nile Rodgers' percussive disco style. Thanks to the 1981 launch of MTV in America, new wave bands like Duran Duran and the equally chic-indebted ABC suddenly began cropping up on the American charts. In short, the sound of chic, if not chic themselves, was becoming cool again without them doing anything at all. 
And what were they doing? Nile Rodgers, at least, was attempting a solo album, a bleeding-edge funk and world-beat LP called Adventures in the Land of the Good Groove. It won a smattering of good notices, but it wasn't going to return Rodgers to the charts. In his autobiography, Rogers said he felt like a failure circa 1983. His 70s successes meant he didn't need to work, but everything he'd done since the Diana album had been varieties of flop. Sheik's recent string of low-charting LPs and the Johnny Mathis, Debbie Harry, and Soup for One projects. To numb himself, Niall was indulging heavily in cocaine and alcohol. He needed a rescue, both spiritually and professionally. Perhaps then it makes sense that the person who rescued Niall would be an otherworldly being, a star man, if you will. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. David Bowie and Niall Rogers met at a New York club in 1982 and quickly took a shine to each other. Bowie recognized Rogers as a seeker and a restless spirit with immense talent. He invited Niall to write and record with him in Montreux, Switzerland. And as usual for the chameleonic Bowie, he was looking for a shakeup in his sound. He was out of contract at his former label, RCA Records, and free to do what he wanted. Oddly enough, for Bowie, freedom didn't mean another avant-garde project like his trilogy of late 70s Berlin albums. David told Niall in Switzerland he wanted hits. He wanted to write and record the biggest hits of his career. I'll let Niall Rogers himself tell the story from this 2016 interview live at a Google event. So when, when we were doing the album Let's Dance, he says, nah, darling, 
I just wrote this last night, and I think this could be a hit. It goes something like this. And I went, uh... To me, this sounded like a folk song. Not a bad one, but like, just, you know, like... And he was singing, Let's dance, dun, 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 dun. So I thought he was trying to see if I was just some, like, sycophantish wacky dude who wanted a paycheck or something. So I said to him, hey, David, can I do an arrangement? And he went, sure. I was like, whoa, awesome. So uh, I wrote out some charts, and I changed my guitar part from just up a half step to And I was like going, man, this is cool. And then I inverted the whole thing up an octave. I went. And he was like, wow, that's my song? I went, yeah, now check this out. It was very much like Let's Dance That You Know. And uh, I remember asking him, David, do you think I made this too funky? And he said, the coolest thing I have ever heard in my life. He looked at me and went, Naya, darling, is there such a thing? <laughs> I was like, you, you are the man. In short, Niall helped David shape his song into a hit. And David gave Niall back his confidence. And the finished song and title track from Bowie's forthcoming album, it did more than all right. In the summer of 1983, Let's Dance became David Bowie's first Hot 100 number one hit in nearly eight years, since his 1975 chart topper, Fame. It kicked off the biggest pop star moment of Bowie's career. It even helped launch the career of a killer guitarist who took the song's searing solo, a young Stevie Ray Vaughan. The Let's Dance album tested Nile Rodgers' skills as a producer and arranger. Bowie would bring him songs from the album, including an oddball track from a 1977 LP Bowie wrote with and for his friend Iggy Pop called China Girl. Nile Rodgers reimagined the song from top to bottom, layering in an interpolation of the stereotypical Oriental riff and turning China Girl from proto-punk into pop. It too was a hit, peaking at number 10. I've been like I'm Brando. When I look at my China Girl no David Bowie album had ever generated 
three hits in America. Let's Dance broke that streak when Modern Love, produced by Nile Rodgers as debonair, jet-setting dance rock, reached number 14 on the Hot 100. Let's Dance LP peaked at number four on the album chart, Bowie's highest charting album since 1976's Station to Station, and it was his first to go platinum in America. It was not only the most commercial, most danceable music Bowie had ever released, it also represented a new permutation of Nile Rodgers, moving him finally out from behind his chic success and making him the leading producer of a novel brand of danceable new wave rock music at a moment when that sound was sweeping MTV and Top 40 radio. Suddenly, by late 1983 and 84, Nile Rodgers became pop's most in-demand producer. He took full advantage of this new profile to produce an array of acts from the U.S., the U.K., even Australia. In the name of love, yeah, you thought what a pity. Aussie band In Excess were preparing their album The Swing in the fall of 83 when they invited Nile Rodgers to produce a track for them. Original Sin was a cutting-edge dance rock single featuring Nile's signature riffy guitars. Rodgers encouraged the band to make the lyrics about an interracial couple with the refrain, Dream on White Boy, Dream on Black Girl inspired by Niles' own raising in a multiracial family. Though the song was only a minor pop hit, it was a big club hit, and it set up in excess for their American breakthrough in the second half of the 80s. As a finishing touch, Nile invited American singer Daryl Hall to harmonize with in excess singer Michael Hutchins on the song's chorus. And why was Niall Rogers friendly with Daryl Hall? Around the same time, Niall was producing a remix of Daryl Hall and John Oates' early 1984 single, Adult Education. Rogers pumped up the Hall and Oates track, adding hand-clapping rhythms and tribal chants to make it more infectious. When the In Excess single hit the clubs, it caught the attention of the premier band of MTV-fueled 80s dance rock, the group that had wanted to sound like Chic in the first place, Duran Duran. The Fab Five, as Duran Duran were now dubbed, were busy promoting their smash late 1983 studio album Seven and the Ragged Tiger, 
it led off with the very chic-esque number three hit Union of the Snake. By the time they got wind of Rogers' work with David Bowie and In Excess, Duran Duran were already promoting the album's second single, the number 10 hit New Moon on Monday, and they needed a follow-up. One of the catchiest songs on Seven and the Ragged Tiger, the album's lead-off track, The Reflex, had potential, but it sounded like an album cut. It had a good melodic riff, but it wrote it into the ground, and it wasn't dynamic enough to make it on the radio. So, Duran Duran hired Nile Rodgers, not to produce, but, as with the Hall & Oates single, to rethink the reflex. Nile's remix kept the best elements of the track, but he rebuilt the reflex to sound like it could be playing in a packed nightclub. Or, as in the song's music video, a packed arena. Duran Duran's label feared that Rogers had made the song sound, quote, too black. And at first, they balked at releasing it. The band overruled the label, and they were right to trust Nile Rogers. The Reflex, powered by its remix, became Duran Duran's first ever U.S. number one hit, reaching the top of the Hot 100 in June 1984. Then, almost immediately, the band gave Rogers another assignment, producing a brand new track, which would be a bonus studio cut on their forthcoming live album, Arena. It would have the tribal drums of Niles' remix for Hall & Oates, plus chiming sounds descended from his work in Chic. They called it The Wild Boys. While all this Duran Duran activity was going on, Rogers met and began working with another rising pop star, whom, like David Bowie, he'd first met at a New York nightclub. But unlike Bowie, at that time, she was largely unknown. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rogers was impressed with the young woman's drive. But at first, even he figured she'd only be a hit in dance clubs. It was easy to underestimate Madonna in 1983. Her self-titled debut album was eight tracks of freestyle and electro dance music, like the number 16 hit, Holiday. And many critics dissed Madonna's thin, often high-pitched voice. But the songs were packed with hooks. Sire Records, her label, expected great things from Madonna that she would be much more than a club act. They had even identified a song that might work for her, but it was rather quirky. The songwriting duo of Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly wrote hits for a variety of clients, but even they weren't quite sure what to do with Like a Virgin. This demo features Tom Kelly singing in falsetto. A Warner executive thought that Madonna might like it, and she did. She proposed that it should be the title track from her next album, and that Nile Rodgers, whom she'd met the prior year after a live club appearance, should produce it. So, Sire approached Nile to produce Madonna's forthcoming second album. More confident after his David Bowie triumph, Rodgers negotiated a lopsided deal that gave him a bigger share of the LP than a producer normally earns. He later said the Like a Virgin album was the most lucrative LP he ever worked on. Sire agreed to his terms, and in early 1984, Niall began work with Madonna. Her instincts about him proved right. He knew what to do with that quirky song. Nile brought in both of his instrumental peers from Chic, bassist Bernard Edwards and drummer Tony Thompson to play on the Like a Virgin album. 
he had convinced Madonna that even though she was primarily thought of as a dance artist, one likelier to sing over synth melodies and programmed beats, live instruments would bring the songs to life. He also coached her on how to sing both Like a Virgin and Material Girl, two songs that were in a key outside of her natural range. Between Niall's technical skill and Madonna's legendary work ethic, they finally nailed the vocals. By the way, a quick aside, not only was Rogers instrumental in Madonna's vocal performance, he was dead on about bringing in his old bandmates, especially drummer Tony Thompson. The drums on Like a Virgin are, I would argue, the album's most underrated element. Seriously, even if you've heard Material Girl a bajillion times, listen to it again with fresh ears. Tony Thompson's backbeat and drum fills are monstrous. The Like a Virgin album was largely complete by the start of summer 1984. But there was a problem, a good problem to have. The Madonna album, her debut, was still generating hits. Borderline took several months to climb the charts, and by early summer 84, it was a top 10 hit, Madonna's first. Sire Records approached Nile Rodgers, telling him the first album was doing better than expected, and asking him what they should do. Rodgers advised them to hold the new album that he'd just produced and keep promoting singles from the first one. The Gambit worked. Lucky Star reached number four on the Hot 100 by the early fall of 84, setting up the second album perfectly. Of course, by the time Lucky Star peaked, Madonna herself had provided the best possible album preview with this televised showcase. Madonna's fabled performance on MTV's first ever Video Music Awards in 1984 ensured that Like a Virgin would be a smash both the Nile Rodgers-produced album and the single. By December 1984, the song had topped the Hot 100, Madonna's first ever number one. By February 1985, the album was also number one. Both of these chart toppers cemented Nile Rodgers' status. Remarkably, the Like a Virgin album was the first number one LP of his career. No Chic album had gone that high, nor had the Diana or Let's Dance LPs. 
and the single was his fifth Hot 100 number one as a producer, following his two chic chart toppers, Diana Ross's Upside Down, and David Bowie's Let's Dance. If you count his remix work on Duran Duran's The Reflex, it was his sixth. And crucially, from Upside Down to Like a Virgin, Nile Rodgers had scored the bulk of his number ones after the Disco Sucks movement had killed Sheik's commercial prospects. Which, by the way, was ongoing. Sheik were still in a slump. As late as 1983, Rogers and Bernard Edwards were still issuing albums and singles, but none of them did well on the charts. Even as they tried to modernize the Sheik sound, tracks like Give Me the Lovin' would miss the Hot 100 entirely and peter out in the lower half of the R&B chart. This strained the relationship between Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. Nile brought in his friend to play bass on both the David Bowie and Madonna albums, but their interactions were more chilly and businesslike. Nile shifted his attention fully toward his behind-the-boards career, producing and playing for a slew of different acts, as varied as Mick Jagger on his first solo album, 1985's She's the Boss, Peter Gabriel with a song that was on, no kidding, the Gremlins soundtrack, and the Thompson Twins, whose next album was foundering after its lead single, Lay Your Hands On Me, missed the U.S. charts in late 1984. Arista executive Clive Davis hired Nile Rodgers to save the Thompson Twins project, and in 1985, Nile remixed the hit and turned the Thompson Twins' Here's to Future Days album into a success. Even one of Nile's old clients was benefiting from his newfound clout. Sister Sledge mounted a comeback in England in 1984 when a reissue of their single Thinking of You, originally from their 1979 We Are Family album, reached number 11 on the UK chart. Striking while the iron was hot, Sister Sledge went back into the studio with Nile Rodgers in 1985 and produced a new album, which spawned Sister Sledge's first and only UK number one hit, Frankie. The comeback of Sister Sledge was a throwback to the peak chic era, when Rogers and Bernard Edwards were still a joint chart colossus. But by 1985, Bernard Edwards was finally making his own mark as a solo producer. 
and he did it just as one Nile Rodgers client was splintering apart. The Power Station was a Duran Duran spin-off group. It comprised the band's guitarist, Andy Taylor, its bassist, John Taylor, journeyman singer Robert Palmer, and chic drummer Tony Thompson. The two Taylors formed the group in a bid to produce more rock-leaning tracks than Duran Duran. Named for a famed New York City recording studio, the power station tapped Bernard Edwards to produce their self-titled 1985 debut album, which eventually went platinum and spawned the instant number six hit, Some Like It Hot. Edwards did so well producing the Power Station side project that soon he was tapped to work on the main event, Duran Duran, who had been tapped by the producers of the James Bond movie franchise to record the title track from 1985's Roger Moore film, A View to a Kill. Bernard Edwards co-produced the theme with longtime James Bond score composer John Barry. When A View to a Kill, the song, topped the Hot 100 in July 1985, it not only became Duran Duran's second-ever U.S. number one hit, it also gave each chic founder credit on a Duran Duran chart topper. The Edwards-produced Bond theme hit the top just over a year after Nile Rodgers' remix of The Reflex. At one point in the summer of 85, hits by both Duran Duran and The Power Station were going head-to-head on the charts, and both of them were produced by Bernard Edwards, A View to a Kill, and The Power Station's cover of T-Rex's classic Get It On, Bang a Gone, which reached number nine. Then, when Power Station singer Robert Palmer decided to skip touring with the project and focus instead on his next solo album, he tapped Bernard Edwards to produce it. That album, Riptide, went double platinum, the biggest seller of Robert Palmer's career. And in the spring of 1986, it generated Palmer's only Hot 100 number one hit, the Edwards-produced Addicted to Love. For the second half of the 1980s, even if they weren't competing directly with each other, Bernard Edwards was evening the score with his former partner, Nile Rodgers. Both of them were chart titans, each producing a string of hits for a wide range of artists. Early in 1986, Edwards produced a song on the gold soundtrack to the movie Pretty in Pink for British new wave rocker Baluey Sum. Say, 
Edwards also produced a top five hit in 1987 for the dance pop duo ABC with their soul revival smash When Smokey Sings. He produced a track for Jody Watley's solo debut album, the top 10 hit Don't You Want Me. And Edwards produced the lead-off hit from Out of Order, veteran Rod Stewart's 1988 chart comeback album, The Rocker Lost in You. Nile Rodgers reconvened in 1986 with Duran Duran, producing their platinum comeback album, Notorious. Its title track was a number two hit. And though Nile didn't produce it, he played rhythm guitar and appeared in the video for Steve Winwood's R&B-flavored 1986 number one smash, Higher Love. Perhaps Nile Rodgers' most unexpected success of the late 80s was the 1989 B-52's album Cosmic Thing. We talked about this improbable smash in our 2018 Hit Parade episode about the bands from Athens, Georgia, the B-52's and R.E.M. Suffice it to say, no one involved with Cosmic Thing expected it to be the multi-platinum blockbuster it became. That included its two producers, who each took on about half of the B-52's album. Was Not Was bassist and co-founder Don Was produced four of the album's tracks, including the funk-flavored party track Love Shack. Rogers produced the album's other six tracks, including two of its later hits. Rogers harkened back to his psychedelic hippie past with the groovy, globetrotting Rome, a number three hit. And he helmed the B-52's elegiac follow-up single, Deadbeat Club, a number 30 hit. By 1990, Niles' credibility in the guitar world was strong enough that he produced the first and only album by brothers and ace guitarists Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Remember, Stevie Ray had worked with Rogers in 1983 on David Bowie's Let's Dance album, 
The Vaughn Brothers album Family Style, produced by Rogers, turned out to be Stevie Ray's swan song. It was released in September 1990, just weeks after Stevie Ray Vaughan died in a helicopter crash. By the turn of the 90s, both Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards had each achieved enough success that they felt ready to reunite Chic. They revived the band in 1992 with an array of different players. Drummer Tony Thompson was busy working on other projects and unavailable, but vocalist Fonzie Thornton did return. The 92 album Chicism wasn't a big seller, but it did generate two big club hits, the self-referential Chic Mystique, which modernized their vintage disco sound. And Your Love, which blended the chic sound with the deep bass of 90s house music. The mid-90s was a time of rebuilding in general especially for Nile Rodgers. Having spent the last decade and a half abusing both alcohol and cocaine, and after several near-death experiences, including a hospital visit where his heart had stopped multiple times, Nile finally got sober in 1994 and remains in recovery to this day. Edwards, too, had burned the candle at both ends since Sheik's success, although Rogers claims he did a better job of hiding his addiction. In April 1996, Nile Rogers was invited to Tokyo to accept a Super Producer of the Year Lifetime Achievement Award, and he was invited to perform at the legendary Budokan Arena. Nile brought along the members of Chic to Tokyo, including Bernard Edwards, to share the spotlight with him. But on the night of the performance, Edwards was feeling gravely ill. Despite Rogers' insistence that they postpone the Tokyo gig, Edwards insisted that the show go on as planned. That night, at the Budokan, even in his weakened condition, Edwards played many of his legendary chic basslines to a roaring crowd. After the show, Edwards returned to their hotel, telling Rogers he just needed to rest. It was the last time they spoke. Bernard Edwards was found dead the following morning. The autopsy determined he had died of pneumonia. Edwards was 43 years old. Nile Rogers was devastated at the loss of his longtime friend and chic collaborator. It would not be the last time he lost a musical peer. In 2003, drummer Tony Thompson succumbed to renal cancer just three days before his 49th birthday. Nile himself endured a 2010 diagnosis of prostate cancer, but amazingly, more than a decade after that diagnosis, he remains both alive and sober. 
And it's a good thing Rogers lived to see the last quarter century since Bernard Edwards' passing. It has not been a quiet 25 years for Niall or his chic legacy. Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards scored two more number one Hot 100 hits in the late 90s without doing a thing. A pair of hip-hop chart toppers sampled two classic chic productions and took them to the top. In the summer of 1997, Mo Money, Mo Problems, the Puff Daddy produced posthumous hit for the notorious B.I.G. rode a sample of the Diana Ross smash I'm Coming Out to the top of the charts. And just six months later, in early 1998, Will Smith took a sample of the Sheik-produced Sister Sledge smash, He's the Greatest Dancer, and transformed it into his number one smash, Getting Jiggy With It. Getting Jiggy With It. For his part, Nile Rodgers remained active as a player and producer. He collaborated with Duran Duran again on their 2004 album Astronaut, and its club hit Reach Up for the Sunrise. And in 2012, Nile received featured billing on the Adam Lambert track Shady. While these samples and credits for Rogers were rolling out, something subtler but more significant was happening in 21st century pop. The chic sound was flowing through a new wave of electronic dance music, and the torch was carried most firmly by French EDM duo Daft Punk. After building an ever-larger audience through the 90s and aughts for their robotic throwback future funk, Daft Punk finally decided to record a full album with turn-of-the-80s technology, and they invited Nile Rodgers to take part in what would become their biggest album. When the LP, Random Access Memories, arrived in the spring of 2013, Nile Rodgers' syncopated guitar lines were audible right from the opening track, Give Life Back to Music. Daft Punk's album intended to do just that, and it fulfilled its mission on its monster hit single. Get Lucky was written, performed, and co-credited 
to Daft Punk featuring Pharrell Williams and Nile Rodgers. It shot up the charts, reaching number two on the Hot 100 in the summer of 2013. It gave Nile Rodgers his biggest hit in decades, and it swept the critics' prizes as the song of the year. The critics weren't the only ones impressed. Both Random Access Memories and Get Lucky were nominated for top prizes at the 2014 Grammy Awards. That night at the Staples Center, Daft Punk, Pharrell, Nile Rodgers, and special guest Stevie Wonder performed a medley of Get Lucky and Wonder's classic Another Star. At one point in the middle of the song, they broke out into a few bars of Chic's biggest hit, Le Freak. Then, in an upset, the Daft Punk album and single swept the night's top two prizes, Album of the Year and Record of the Year. Nile Rodgers shared in these awards. Even more amazingly, these prizes, including a third Grammy for pop group performance, were Rodgers' only Recording Academy prizes ever. Backstage, the 61-year-old winner of his first-ever Grammys was stunned. I really expected to walk home with all these Grammys is weird because um, in my long career of making records, I probably have had, I don't know, 10, 12 records uh, win Grammys that the producer um, did, or the writer didn't win the Grammy in that category. So this is shocking to me. I'm really blown away. If the Recording Academy was a bit late honoring Nile Rodgers, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was even more delinquent. When Sheik's first LP turned 25 years old in 2002, the band became eligible for Rock Hall induction. The nominating committee put them on the ballot right away. Sheik were nominated for the Rock Hall's class of 2003. Not too surprisingly, the voters didn't put them in that year. Few bands get into the hall on their first try. But that was just the start of Sheik's frustration. Over the next dozen years, Sheik were nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 10 more times. Their 11 nominations remains a record for the most ballot appearances without induction. The term the Susan Lucci of the Rock Hall has been applied to many artists who waited years to get inducted, especially Sheik. But please note, perennial daytime Emmy nominee Susan Lucci did eventually win her Emmy. Chic are still not in the Rock Hall. Adding insult to injury, practically every year they were on the ballot, other acts Chic was associated with were swept in ahead of them. These include Blondie, who, deservedly, got in with the Rock Hall's class of 2006, while Chic were passed over. 
In 2007, Grandmaster Flash made history as the first hip-hop act to be inducted, while Sheik, the band that Flash loved to slice up on his turntables, went down a third time. In 2008, Madonna, on her very first ballad, got inducted, while her producer, Nile Rodgers, did not. In 2009, guitar wizard Jeff Beck got into the hall. Did I mention? Nile Rodgers produced him, too. In 2013, Sheik's disco peer, Donna Summer, on her fifth try and, tragically, the year after her death, was finally, deservedly, inducted. A year after that, in 2014, Daryl Hall and John Oates finally took the podium to accept induction. Sheik went unfulfilled for the eighth time. The next year, 2015, Sheik were blanked a ninth time, while Nile Rodgers' late friend Stevie Ray Vaughan was belatedly inducted. In all of these years, the Rock Hall nominating committee stubbornly, but rightly, kept putting Sheik on the ballot. The voters, made up largely of veteran rockers who didn't get the memo that disco and dance music are part of rock and roll, just kept ignoring that box. This makes Sheik officially the most snubbed act in Rock Hall history. Their 11 nominations beat the prior record by Solomon Burke, who got in on his 10th ballot. By the way, your Hit Parade host became a Rock Hall voter in 2016, and I got to vote for Sheik once, for all the good that that did. In 2017, when Sheik were snubbed that 11th time, the Rock Hall organizers finally waved a white flag. They announced that Nile Rodgers, by himself, would be inducted into the hall for his production work under the banner of Musical Excellence, a category the hall organizers can use by fiat without a full membership vote. That night, at the induction ceremony at Brooklyn's Barclays Center, the surviving co-founder of Chic was genuinely touched, but he couldn't help alluding to the irony. It, it's funny, I was saying to Pharrell, um, almost everybody on this stage, as a matter of fact, almost everybody who's been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I've worked with. <laughs> this, this award, which is amazing to me, is really because 
of all the people that have allowed me to come into their lives and just join their band. Be it Mick Jagger, be it Madonna, be it Bowie, be it the B-52s, be it NXS, be it Daft Punk, be it Pharrell Williams, be it Diana Ross, be it Sister Sledge. I mean, just goes on and on and on. And I gotta tell you, thank you Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As for the legacy of Chic, well, you've probably heard their sound on the radio just in the last year. A wave of nouveau disco pop dominated the charts in 2020, including new hits by Doja Cat, Lady Gaga, and, most especially, British singer Dua Lipa, whose number two smash, Don't Start Now, is a loving, faithful recreation of the peak Chic sound. Don't show up, don't come out, don't start caring about me now. I like to think that the world needed Chic in 2020. Between the pandemic and our divisive politics, it was a rough year, even rougher than 1979, the year Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards kept America's spirits aloft by insisting that these were the good times. Bernard Edwards spent his final night on Earth in 1996 playing his most immortal bass line at the Budokan in Tokyo. And however long we still have Nile Rodgers with us, I know he'll keep scratching out a rhythm on his guitar while his feet keep dancing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Salujan. Special thanks to dance music scholar Christian John Wykane for research assistance. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.